Uh, I'm anxious to open his word with you. Just a few notes uh, beforehand, just to get your eyes on the uh, programs that are probably every other chair, every third chair. Just a few announcements. Uh, we, we, we're seeing a lot of new faces, and, and we love that. And welcome. Uh, welcome to a place where it has Jesus and him alone and nothing else to point to. Uh, welcome to a place in which we just stumble forward into more of his grace uh, and, and where we just look to him and all that we're doing and look to our God by faith and trust him. So you can see that number you can text with the phrase new to the number two PCC just to get more information if you want to journey with us. Uh, and, and however, there are many opportunities to get connected. Uh, we're finishing up the Christ-centered cohort. Uh, you can still journey with us um, and just come Wednesday night uh, at 6 p.m. We have uh, two more weeks left and then a celebration, which we're uh, pumped about 24 of us have stuck with it. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and it's been so fruitful and so enlightening and so joy-filled, even for my, my own soul. Most importantly, for my own soul. Um, uh, next, youth, PCC Youth Gathering, March 7th at the building at 6 p.m. Uh, you may even still be finding Nerf darts like under your chairs and around uh, because we, we play pretty hard uh, there. We, we study pretty, pretty hard, but we also play pretty hard. And uh, it got pretty intense in the dark in this sanctuary uh, during a few capture the flag moments. Uh, there may have been uh, cardboard shields and uh, some of these signs have been used as shields too, right, Lance? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and if you want to uh, just get more connected, we have a connect desk right around the corner. Uh, feel free. Uh, and then, man, we, we're so excited to be able to ramp up our PCC kids um, downstairs. We have two classrooms opening, or two classrooms open, and then uh, two more opening hopefully next week. But we do still need volunteers, and the Lord is prompting you um, to get involved and to serve sacrificially. Uh, man, what an awesome opportunity to share the gospel with our kids. Because, uh, guys, if we had a perfect storm of kids around here, there would be like 60 to 75 kids. Um, praise God. Praise God. And it's a serious responsibility to grow them up in who they are in Christ and preach the good news to them wherever they are. Um, and so what, a, what an opportunity for us to uh, steward that gift of our kids well. Um, so if you would... Let's just bow in prayer before we turn to Matthew 5. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for your church. You're building it. You're moving among it. We're, we're simply receiving. Thank you for your grace upon grace upon grace. So what we what we know not, reveal to us. What we hear not, give us ears to hear. And what we see not, give us eyes to see. The glories and the riches of your majesty and your glory revealed in the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, kiddos, you may be uh, dismissed in Exodus downstairs. Uh, we have babies and walkers open uh, and uh, pre-K open this morning. Um, Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is where we'll be landing. What we're actually going to do is uh, recap from last week to make things clear for us. And so we're going to recap a recap uh, to make sure it's crystal clear. And so before I unpack what we're going to do, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17, if you would read with me. Gosh, and I hope you have your eyes on it. Don't just listen to my words. Get your, get your eyes in the word. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And if we turn, turn back to Genesis 15 with me, there's going to be two hinge texts that we're going to be focusing on, and we're just going to zoom in like a telescope or like a microscope this morning, not a telescope. But Genesis 15, in verse 6, we get... And unpacking, we get an image, a, a picture of, of what, where we're going this morning. And so in verse 6 of chapter 15 of the first book of the Bible, we read this. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Back to Matthew 5. Now what, what, we, what we must understand and what we must enter into what Jesus is saying in chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, is that the Bible is one unified story. That the Bible is not a separated stories and, and a micro stories. No, there, there are a bunch of micro stories that make up a macro story. There are a bunch of smaller stories that make up an overarching theme throughout all of the Bible telling one story of how God saves sinners. That is the story, that is the arc of from beginning to end. It's this one story with many micro stories telling an overall story of how God paves a way for broken sinners to stand before him. And it's the good news of the gospel. And what we, what we, what we can't do then, and what I, I'm, conv I'm convicted by, by loving brothers, to be honest with you, that, that what was not clear last week was that truth. That the way God saves us today and the way God saves Old Testament saints back then is the same way. And as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an elder, it is my responsibility that's not, not just to teach correct doctrine, but to also preach it with clarity so that you receive it as correct doctrine. Because not everything that is said out of my mouth is how you... Listen, uh, there are a lot of things going on up here. And if you know me, you're like, yes. Uh, and just talk to the tech guys up there. Let's see how true I stay to my notes this morning. They get a picture of that. And, and what, I was, what, the, the, what I was thinking I was saying, I had loving brothers come up to me and be like, yeah, that was not what was received, brother. I'm going to love you enough, and I'm going to love this flock enough, because we have elders here who love this flock. Do you understand that? We have elders here who are shepherding under the chief shepherd in a way that points you to the glories and riches of Jesus. And if there's anything tainting that, we're going to make sure it's as clear as possible that we get rid of it. Amen? Yeah. And so what I want to do is, is make sure that what is clear is that Jesus, in verse 17, is not saying there's a story that's ending and a new one is picking up. What Jesus is saying is that he is actually completing the one story that's already, he's fulfilling full the one story that's already being told and there's more to come. That's, 
That's what he's doing here. He's not saying one story's done and now a completely different story is happening and so it's changed completely and God changed his mind on how he's going to save sinners. That is not what he's saying. It's one overall narrative, one overarching story of how God makes sinners right with himself. And what Jesus is saying is don't think that I've come to get rid of it. Don't think that I've come to explode it. Don't think that I've come to set it aside. I've actually come to continue the story that's already being told and fill it full. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So Jesus is, is, is telling us that the law, that all of it, 10 commandments and 603 more, are pointing, are actually prophetic in pointing towards me. <laughs> this is so cool. I just pray that we can see this. And it's like, it's like this. Uh, guys, we have that picture mosaic. Let's throw the first picture up. If you weren't here last week, if you were here, we'll just get a, a reminder. And so get that first picture up there. Um, yeah. Now, do we, now, we have a bunch of smaller tiles here. And now somebody just shout out, what do you see? You see faces, right? You, you see, it's pretty blurry though, isn't it? It's not as clear, but it's there. You know, you said it with confidence. You know what it is. All right, now let's go to the next one. Now what else are you starting to see? Starting to see a, do you see an ear up at the top left? A shoulder, you're starting to see that arm come out. It's starting, as you zoom out, it's starting to make a little bit more sense, right? Now let's go to the last picture. Now what do we see? Yeah, and what's on his head? Some thorns. You start seeing more clearly. It starts making more sense. And the narrative of the gospel story is that was once a whisper in the Old Testament, though it was there, and it's our problem that we don't see it clearly. It's not God's problem. He's there. The overarching theme of the, of the gospel is that Jesus more clearly gets rid of all the dust, all the fog, and makes it clear exactly what God is doing in his story. Because it's one story of a good God who saves us through Jesus, from beginning to end. There's no separate ways to save an Old Testament saint compared to a New Testament saint, nor us. It's the same act of salvation and the same source of salvation. Does that make sense? Well, if it doesn't, I hope to show that to you. I hope God's Word shows us that this morning. Keep that up there if you could. Thanks. We see that the way of salvation in the New Testament has not changed. It will, it has been, is, and will continue to be the same until Christ's return. The way of salvation is faith in the promises of God. Done. Faith in the promises of God. The Old Testament saints, back to Genesis 15, stay planted in Matthew 5. Genesis 15, you might as well mark it with something because we'll be landing there, we'll be starting there, and we'll be landing there with a bunch in between. You see verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. The Old Testament saints were looking forward, were looking ahead to the promise of God, and we, on this side of the cross, look back to the promise of God and forward to the promises of God to come. It's how it works. We on this side of the cross look to Jesus on the cross. Them on that side of the cross look forward to Jesus and the act of redemption and forgiveness and way to stand before a holy, good, just, right God. But we all meet at the foot of the cross. You see that? All of it. 
All of eternity is leading to this moment. All of history is leading to this moment of redemption. So there's no separate ways of salvation. It's the same from the beginning to the end, and it's found in Christ and trust in the promises of God through the gospel. It's how it works. Now look at, look at what Jesus has to say about the Old Testament saints. This is cool. So stay planted. You have Genesis 15. Find a way to get that. But Matthew 13, look at what Jesus has to say about him, about himself. We have all kinds of views about Jesus, but we, man, we, we must let Jesus define himself for us, right? That's how we do things around here. <clears throat> Matthew 13, beginning in verse 16. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Verse 17. For truly I tell you, listen, just look at this. Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Many, now, okay, just, just make sure. Many prophets and righteous people. <laughs> they, they're longing to see who? Church? Jesus, they're longing to hear from Jesus, to see Jesus, the filled full promises of God. They're longing to see him. They're, and they're actually, he's standing right there. And I tell you, Jesus says, many prophets and righteous people have longed to see and to hear what you are seeing and what you are hearing. Now, look at, Peter picks up on this idea in 1 Peter. So turn there. Beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets... All right. Now, make sure this is clear. Concerning the, this salvation, <laughs> this saving, concerning this, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you... So the prophets are speaking of the grace to come... <laughs> Searched intently and with great, the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah. And if, if you take notes in your Bible, Isaiah 53, suffering servant, and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when the prophets, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look at this. Even angels long to look into these things. <laughs> so we have what we hold in the good news of the gospel is we have prophets and righteous people longing to see what we see in Jesus. And we have even angels longing to see what we see in the good news of the gospel. <laughs> now, now, what we must see is that angels have no need of salvation. <laughs> but we, as those who have been saved from death and rescued into life, now get a greater image of what God is doing, a greater picture of God's glory, a greater picture of his goodness, his kindness, his love, his pursuit that angels don't even have. Let your creative minds go there, church. This is pretty cool. Back to Matthew chapter 5. 
So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is coming to us and he's coming to them and, he, and, and in turn to us because the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And, and Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the hope that's woven throughout all of the Old Testament. The gospel is not a new idea. It's been there from the very beginning. <laughs> this is, and we'll, we'll get there. If you're like, where? Show me. We will. And, and Peter says that the prophets wrote of this grace that was to be yours. The whole Bible is an unfolding story of God's redemption of human sinners, and it's what angels even longed to look into. And so if that is the case, verse 17 of Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to do that, to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fill them full, to continue the story of what God is doing and to make it more clear than it's ever been before. Exactly what he's doing. And you may be asking, and I hope you are, I mean, it's a good question. So what is the purpose of the law? Why do we need it? What, what, why did they need it? What's the, what was its intent? It's a good question. Let's go to Galatians 3. Again, we just let the Bible unpack the Bible for us here. We just, guys, if we just read enough, if we just stay committed to this enough, these, these, God will reveal these answers to you. You don't need someone to reveal them for you. You can do it on your own by the power of the Holy Spirit, by just staying open-minded and asking deep questions and searching intently. He'll reveal it to you. Verse 24. So what is the law for? Among many answers that could be had, God, through Paul, helps us. Verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might, look at this, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, now this, is, this is cool because the word guardian can be translated as schoolmaster in the Greek. Schoolmaster. And what a schoolmaster was is if you had money and you had means, you would hire a servant to watch over your boys. And they would go wherever you, they are going. You don't leave the house unless your schoolmaster is going with you and says it's okay. They are, they are servants to take care of the boys. That's what they existed for. The Romans was a, a trustworthy, it was a Greek and Roman idea in, in their culture, a trustworthy slave who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the upper class. The boys were not allowed to even step out of the house without them arriving uh, uh, without them before arriving to the age of manhood. Then what is the means of salvation throughout all of Scripture if the law wasn't a means of, of salvation? Do you see that? If, if the Bible is telling us that the law can't save you and was never meant to save you, then we have to ask a question. And what is that question, church? Then what saves you, right? That's a good question that we must ask. So who, let's, let's ask it like this. Who or where should we go as a picture of salvation in the Old Testament? I'm legit asking. Who? Abraham? Who, there was another one too. But Abraham, right? Abraham. He's a picture of what it means of faith is salvation. That faith is, of, is being standing before God as a righteous person. Faith is what saves you. Go back to Genesis 15 now. Abraham believed Yahweh. He believed God. And because he believed God,
Faith in God's promise. Now, the question we have to ask is, what did he believe God in or for? Well, go back to chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's house, verse 1, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you. Excuse me, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now what's the, what's the problem with this promise that God just made to Abraham? What's the problem? What's the, what's the problem there? What doesn't Abraham have? Family, a son. He doesn't have a son in which the future generations will be blessed through, a line. He has no lineage. He has no son to inherit what God will do. And what does Abraham do? He goes. He trusts. Now, Abraham is a needy, stumbling sinner who needs God's grace and mercies, just like us, but he goes. Abraham has doubts, just like us, but he goes. I once heard this picture summarized. Abraham, God telling Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go. And Abraham asks where, and God says, I'll tell you later. <laughs> but Abraham still goes. He believed, he trusted. And then verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 6 this promise is, is being played out and years are going by and there's still no offspring. There's still no future inheritance, still no future lineage, still no son, still no child. Abraham was 75 years old when God came to him in Genesis 12. And just like us, chapter 16 comes in the picture and we get impatient with the promises of God. And at age 86, Sarah and Abraham come up with an idea to go into his servant and to produce Ishmael with his servant. And it doesn't go well. That is not the promised child. At age 86, he gets impatient. He, God came to him at age 75 and says, I will give you. Abraham gets impatient. Abraham and Sarah get impatient at age 86. And then Genesis 15 comes right before that picture, even in the, even in the middle of God saying, I'm going to reassure you of my covenant. Abraham and Sarah still get impatient with the promise. It's just a, just a picture. It's just a picture that it is not the intensity of our faith that saves us, but rather the source of our faith that saves us. We, we can't confuse this. We can't... All of this then... So, Bible trivia time. When does the law come? What, what book and what chapter? There we go, Exodus 20. Okay. Now, good question to ask is how, how long has that been? What's the span of time between this moment? And, well, okay, good. God through Paul tells us in Galatians 3, again, if you haven't noticed, Galatians 3 can be a great piggyback text on the story of Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 17. Look at verse 17, 16, really, just to give it. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. <laughs> Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. <laughs> what I mean is this. The law introduced 
430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no long, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. You guys see that? That Abraham was counted as righteous before the law even came into play. That, that Abraham's righteousness was not based on his moralistic behavior or his outward doing, but rather inward belief. He trusted God. And here it gets even better. Look at chapter 17. What's your subtitle above of Genesis 17? Circumcision. And, and it's an outward display. Look at, look at how the language that God uses for circumcision in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, so, so started out the story at 75, now he's 99. Still, what hasn't come yet? Who hasn't? been born yet the promised child when abram was 99 years old the lord appeared to him and said i am god god almighty walk before me faithfully and be blameless then i will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers abraham fell face down and god said to him as for me this is my covenant with you you will be the father of many nations i mean just put yourself in this picture i mean my skeptical self would be like how <laughs> Are you gonna, I'm 99 years old, God. We'll keep going. Be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Verse 9, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 15.6. Abraham is counted as righteous. He believed God was counted as righteous. His outward display did not save him. What did his outward display do? What did it show? Well, let's read. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. What did his circumcision, what did his outward behavior reveal to the watching world? That he's in covenant with God. That, that he's righteous before, that he's with God, that he's a saved person of God, that God saved him. That's how this works. So it's not external behavior that saves you. It's rather internal belief that saves you. And, and, and this just whole series of events shows us this true saving faith from Genesis to Revelation is by the grace of God in the promise of God. That's how it works. The Old Testament people were saved by faith in a coming deliverer, the seed, the offspring, the coming Messiah. They believed that God would do what he said he was going to do, and therefore they were counted as righteous. Amen? 
It, Abraham, now you want to see, you want to see how, if you don't know the story, you want to see how this plays out, just turn to chapter 22. Abraham so much so believed God that it led him to walk up a mountain because God said so with his son carrying a sacrifice, the sacrifice, the elements of a sacrifice. For who? His son. His, his promised child. The one that God promised him in Genesis 12. He's now walking up a mountain to sacrifice him. He believed God so much. His faith was, was so foundational to who he was that he was walking up a mountain with his son beside him. And it's a tough story to read. If, if, I mean, really, it is. And w- turn to, So in light of that, turn to Hebrews 11. Again, we let the Bible tell us about the Bible. We don't put stuff on the Bible from our own minds. We let the Bible put stuff on our minds. And the Bible tells us why Abraham could do this. Verse 17 of Hebrews 11. Some of you know this chapter is like the hall of faith. Uh, my subtitle says faith in action. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, why? How could Abraham do this? Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. (laughs) He trusted God. He knew that even if Isaac was sacrificed, even if he went through with it, that God would somehow, some way, resurrect him from death to life. His faith wasn't in his own behavior. His faith was in a faithful God. That's how this works. True saving faith in the promises of God always leads to a radical response. Let me just repeat that. True saving faith in God always leads to a radical response. If you listen to me, if you understand back to Genesis 15 area, if you understand that a holy and righteous just God, the one who created the heavens and the earth from nothing, the one who measures the universe from his thumb to his pinky, the one who we can't even see the glory. We can't even stand before his glory and not crumble. If we understand the me- that, that this is the God who has made a way for us to stand before him through the blood of his son, then I think we'd have more of a Psalm 8 mindset, which says, what is man that you are mindful of him? I think, we'd, I think if we just sit in the glory and the majesty of God for a moment, that we wouldn't walk into this place with a swag. We'd walk into this place with a limp. And we'd, we'd walk into this place with an eager expectation for God to move among needy, broken, lowly people. Because that's, that's all we are here, guys. How, why would God do this? Why would he make a way for us to stand before him? Why would he pursue us? What scandalous love. I call it a paradox. It's such a paradox. I don't deserve it, but I have it. 
And, and, and that's what Abraham, back in Genesis 15, that's what he's showing us. He's a prototype for us of what it means. How could we possibly say we trust God and not respond and be changed by what he has done in the gospel, in the good news? How could we say with our mouth, because faith without deeds is dead. How can we say with our mouth that we believe this gospel? How can we say with our mouth that we believe this God and not live a life all out for him? So we have to make a choice this morning, church. You either wholly disregard it or you die fully in, but there's no room for us to play games around here. None. The gospel is so big, the gospel is so good, the good news is so large, and it matters to all of our life, and it's so serious that we don't play games with it. We either go all in or we reject it, we reject it wholly. The gospel demands a radical response from us. That's what Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount. Either you deny it fully or you jump into it wholly, but you don't play a game with it. The key issue that we see here is chapter 15 of Genesis is how is a sinner put right with a holy and righteous God? And the answer, church, is what? By what? By merit? By work? Ah, by faith. Look at, stay in 15, I promise you we're going to land this plane. Galatians 3 again. Now, there are, there are other places we can go. I'm trying to make sure it is as clear as possible for us this morning by staying in, in Galatians and in Genesis 15, Galatians 3 and Genesis 15, and just playing this back and forth game. But look at verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. <clears throat> so, also, Abram, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, verse 7, that those who are, have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw, man, highlight, underlight, circle, foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely, verse 10, on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen and amen. There's only one way to salvation, and it's by faith in God. There's only one route to salvation, and it's by faith in God revealed in Christ. Now, Jesus tells us, mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. It becomes dangerous then to separate the two testaments. 
as if they're two wholly, completely different things, as if they're so that God was acting one way in the old and he's now changed his mind and is acting different in the new. Not how it goes, church. It's one unified story of how God makes sinners right with him. John 14, 6, Jesus even says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through who? Him. So if that's the case, if no one gets to the Father except through him, then how did the Old Testament saints get saved? Who did they ultimately have faith in? Who was their faith ultimately revealed in? Jesus. We all meet at the foot of the cross. He was right there with them. He didn't just show up in the New Testament. He was there from the very beginning. And I, I want, the gospel is not a new thing. It's been there from the beginning. And I said that, and we're going to land the plane like this. Turn with me to Genesis 3, and then we're going to get back to Matthew 5, and we're going to sing, and we're going to float out of here. Genesis 3. Verse 15. This is, this is after uh, Adam and Eve, they, they rebelled against God and his word and his ways. They took of the fruit, they ate, and they tried to define good and evil for themselves. They wanted to do their life their way, and it's just not how life works. Verse 15, God deals with the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's the, it's the first gospel statement. The fancy word, if you want to impress friends, is proto-eongelion. First good news. First gospel. First declaration of what God is going to do. And it was heard in the garden by Adam and Eve. It was actually seen in the garden by Adam and Eve in verse 21. Chapter 3. Now, now just to give it some context... So Adam and Eve hear this conversation between the serpent. We can just uh, assume that, that they're right there. And, and before this, in verse 7, when they realized they were naked, when they realized their eyes were open, and they tried to cover themselves with what, church? Fig leaves. And God says, no, that's not how it works. You can't cover yourself. I must cover you. And blood must be shed. Verse 21 of chapter 3, the Lord God had made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God just declared that to the serpent, you're done for. Your head will be crushed. And then he goes and turns to Adam and Eve and he says, that's not good enough because you can never cover yourself. Your, your merits and your working to cover yourself will never give you what you want. Only I can give you what you want. And there must be a substitute in your place. And blood must be shed because there's life in the blood. And so I must sacrifice a lamb, we can assume, or an animal of some kind, in order to cover you in your sin. Now, what did they deserve for rebelling against the holy God, church? Death, and what did they get? Life. Covering. Now, they they did experience death. We know that. Don't hear that. But God has given us foreshadowings of and shadows of what is to come ultimately that we can't cover ourselves and that we need God to cover us for us. <laughs> that Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. 
Colossians says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They, they point forward to something or someone else, a true and better substitute, a priest that is to come, a sacrifice that won't have to be made continually year after year. And the gospel was preached in advance in Genesis 12 to Abraham. Here's how I want to end. Chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham, it's, it's impossible, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us. So the Old Testament saints simply looked forward, looked ahead, anticipated the coming Messiah. By faith, they trusted God and his promises, and they did what he did, they, what he said, and they went where he went, by grace, where he said to go. But they stumbled, and they fell, and they doubted, and so a true and better had to come. So Abraham receives this righteousness, verse 6 of 15. And yet, though, what, what Abraham, look, look at verse 8. This is the reality of the humanness of Abraham. But Abraham said, chapter 15, Genesis, verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He, he even asked it again. He asked it earlier, too. He's, he said, just show me. Give me a glimpse of, of assurance of what, that you're going to do it. Now, he's righteous, Yet, do you hear some, I just need you to show me. Show me. By the, by the way, that's not a bad prayer for any of us here. Show me, Lord. Show me. I mean, if you, that's all you got. It's a pretty good prayer. So what does God do? Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Into the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And look at what happened. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So here, here's what just happened as we, as we end, as we land this plane. What God did with Abraham, Abram said, God, I need you to show me. So God said, I will show you. Get, get me these animals. Cut them in half. Notice Abraham didn't ask any questions. He knew exactly what God was doing here. He knew exactly what God was asking. Abraham knew that there was this covenant ritual of cutting animals in half, and blood would spill in the middle, and one party would stand at one end and another party at the other end. And they would either, depending on class and and status, would either meet halfway or the lower party would go to the upper party, the higher party. And they would either exchange sandals, a kiss, some type of agreement. And when you did that, you were saying, when you entered into this covenant, you were saying, if I don't keep my end of the deal, whatever that deal that was made, then may I be as these animals. And what were the animals? Cut in half. May, may my body be broken. And what's in the middle? What are you walking through, essentially, if there's a ditch? Blood. And may my blood be spilled if I don't keep this end of the deal. Now, notice what happened here, though. 
Who went all the way through in verse 17? God did. Abraham, your faith has made you righteous, and your, your, your doubting questions, your show me, Lord, is a good question, and I'm going to show you. Notice God didn't scorn him for asking this question. I'm going to show you what's going to happen. So God going all the way through is telling Abraham, who's in a deep sleep, who provided nothing to this ritual but the preparation, <laughs> said, Abraham, if I don't keep mind of the deal, may I be as these animals? But Abraham, if you don't keep your end of the deal, may I be as these animals. <laughs> That's how assured you can be of the promises of God. The promises of God are not up to your faith. The promises of God are up to a faithful God who says it and it is, who knows the beginning from the end from the beginning, whose word goes out and it will never return to him void. That is the God that we can trust by faith. And we can go into him and say, God, I am doubting, I am struggling, but I'm trusting you and I'll go where you go and say what you say and do what you tell me to do. Amen? Abraham doubts and God shows him that it's not up to you, Abraham, it's up to me and I cannot fail. Every single promise of God is not up to our faithfulness to him, but rather his faithfulness to us. We are not saved by making promises to God, but by believing the promises of God. From beginning to end, Matthew 5, as we end, as I land it officially, Jesus is saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish it. I've not come to abolish it, but I've come to fill them full. I've come to fulfill them. I've come to continue the story. And it's continued in me. And it won't be a law written externally on your hearts. It'll be a law written internally on your hearts because I've come to do just that, give you a new heart. The good news of the gospel is that that's what we receive. So Genesis 15, 6, God, Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteous. And th that word believed is literally lean your full weight upon. It's the Hebrew word, believed. We have this chair. Somebody tell me about this chair. What color is it? What else? How many legs does it have? Does it have a back? I looked underneath it. It's from Canada. <laughs> now, now, can I keep going? It has some stitches in it. It has this line in it. It has this space right here in it. Now, what am I doing? What are we doing with the chair? Describing it. What, what's the only way for me to receive the benefits of the chair? I must sit in it. Abraham Believe the Lord. He threw his whole weight. He leaned his whole weight upon the Lord. Listen to me. Facts about God doesn't save you. Faith in God does. Now we have a choice. We, we actively, you are, you are hearing the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for us to stand before him. And we can't just describe the chair. We can't just describe God with facts. We must sit in his chair that he has provided for us. We must lean our full weight upon him and say, Lord, I trust you. You've not withheld yourself from me. You've pursued me in the gospel, and it's good news to my weary, dry soul. Thank you. And a life lived out is going to display that truth of what we believe. Our life will reveal it. So as we end, I'm just going to sit here in this chair <laughs> along with you, because that's how this works. Just sit in silence for a little bit. Maybe for the first time for you this week. Maybe 
Just receive what, he's ha- what he has for you. What is, he, what is he calling you to do? Where have you played it safe with God? What are you or who are you leaning your weight on this morning? Just confess that to him, man. And let go of it. And just receive, Lord, I trust you. I'm leaning my full weight in your promises that Jesus Christ has come to save me from my sin and that he is returning to consummate his kingdom and to make all sad things untrue. Let's just do that. So palms open. Yeah, Lord, we thank you that your salvation is, is near. That you pursue us and you never stop pursuing us. That you have made a way. You have done for us what we never could do for ourselves. Thank you for your mercies that are new each, each morning. Thank you for your grace that is unfailing and infinite. Help us by the power of your spirit. Help us to be empowered by your spirit to live in light of who you are, not for who you are. In light of who we are, not for who we are. And from your love and not for it. Help us to be good news people in a bad news world and to be lights in a dark, dark world. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. As we, as we sing this last song, we have communion available in two different ways. Some in your chairs, packets. We have two stations, some in back and some in front. Uh, if you'd rather uh, actively respond in that way, just let your conscience lead you there. Um, just, re- just remember that in the same way that the Passover was an act of an ordinance of remembrance for the people of being rescued from the hands of the Egyptians uh, into freedom in God, that in the same way we do the same thing with our communion. It's an act of remembrance and celebration of the promises of God coming true in our life from death to life, from slavery to freedom, and also a future inheritance that's ours in Christ. Actively remember. Actively put Jesus on your mind and celebrate him. Respond however you want. We receive it, we celebrate it, and we sing about the good news. Let's, let's just do that. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in how that works. Let's sing.